Welcome to episode 22 and amongst other things we're going to talk about tripods, winter tinder bundles, some questions about Australia which we'll get into, trapping, tracking and hunting, um, meat available today versus meat available in the past and spruce resin smoke and cooking. Welcome, welcome to episode 22, 22 already. Um, months are going by, the weeks are going by. Um, again, um, not really a fashion statement but uh, today, but I'm nice and warm. And people have been asking me about this combination as well. This is an old Norina Recon Gore-Tex jacket that I've got on the outside, which I quite like because it's tough but it's also got quite a lot of ventilation and breathability, both in terms of the fabric, but also there's pit zips and, you know, frontal zip and all that kind of thing as well. It's like a heavyweight mountain jacket, which I like uh, for, for using in, use in the winter, skiing as well, ski touring I use this jacket for in really tough conditions in places like Norway. And also I use it around about in the woods in the UK in the winter, because if I'm, you know, if I'm generating a bit of heat while I'm walking, I can ventilate quite well, but it's also very, very protective in poor weather. Um, and one of the things I like to wear with this, not all the time, not if I'm really, really active, but one of the things I can put underneath is a, I've got a Primaloft jacket. It's an old mountain equipment jacket that I used to wear in the mountains. I've got a newer version now that I use for, for winter walking in the mountains, but I like it underneath this because for sitting doing these shows, and often I'm sat here for 30, 40, 50 minutes doing this, um, it's not particularly warm today. There's quite a cold easterly wind and it's towards the end of the day. Um, I've been warm, I've been walking around, but now I sit down and I'm sat here as the sun starts to go down and it's cooling off with this cold easterly wind blowing on my face. It's nice to have a, a, a nice warm jacket to put on underneath and it fits underneath this, uh, this old recon jacket very, very well. The new recon jacket's very good also, I know people who've got that. It's just my old one's still going strong and I don't need a new one. So I like to wear things out. I don't like to have the next thing just because it's available. This works, the new one's lighter. It's a different color, it's a different shade green, but this works very, very well. But as I say, I'm gonna to put together, as I said in the previous issue of Aspore Curly, I'm gonna to put together a separate little piece of content, video content on all of these different options. So they're all in one place, so that I don't have to send people to different videos. So you see what I was wearing in that episode? Well, that's one option. You see what I was wearing in that episode? That's another option. I'm gonna put it all together in one place so that people can have that to refer to. If it's useful, I'm not, say, I'm not saying that that's what people should be doing. Um, you know, I'm not saying you should wear this jacket or this combination. It's just options that I know work for me. I spend a lot of time outdoors. If that information helps other people in terms of either choosing specific garments or just in terms of general principles, then great. Happy to share it. Happy to do that. Anyway, let's get into the questions. Just put my phone down there. Um, in case you're wondering, I, I get, it's quite interesting because I started this show to answer questions about bushcraft and outdoor life and survival skills. And to a large extent, we, we do do that. Um, 
although we do get the occasional kit question of course um but that's part of it we don't go out without any kit we you know people want to know what's what's work they want what, what works for me and what works might work for them people don't want to waste their money so that's fair enough but the other question i'm this classic question i'm starting to get is um about <laughs> making the show <laughs> and one of the things i find particularly useful is it's something that i use you know the reason i use my phone i'm not at the moment i'm not connected to um the net um, I've got a notebook here um, in the form of Evernote, which is a, an app that I find particularly useful for all sorts of reasons. It syncs between my laptop and my phone, so I can put a note in my laptop. So, for example, you email me. What I do then is I put that, um, that question um, in my Evernote file, and then the next time I do an episode, um, I've got them on my phone as well and I've got this set up so that this is an offline file the, the all the ask Paul Kirtley questions so I don't need to be able to access the internet because often it's like here I'm, I'm in the south of England I'm not that far away from anywhere you might even be able to occasionally hear a bit of road noise in the background there as, as a car goes past there's a road on the other hillside over there not that far away but it is a bit undulating and there aren't that many towers around mobile phone reception here is not good data is really difficult so having it on my phone is useful it's also super quick i can forward an email on my um on my laptop to my evernote notebook it syncs with my phone while while i'm at home across the wi-fi and then i've got it on my phone i don't have to be writing things out and or trying to get internet access here it's a system that works so those of you who are wondering why is he on his phone why is it it's all high tech it's supposed to be survival well first off of course it's high tech i'm sat in front of a camera and I'm sending it, eventually it's going to be uploaded onto the internet so somebody can watch it. I don't see the problem using a phone rather than a paper notebook. I use paper notebooks for a lot, but this, this is, is efficiency. And the first question is also about, um, partly about the show, um, about Ask Paul Kirtley's and how I make them. So this is from Peter uh, La Riviere in, hopefully I pronounced that correctly, um, in Canada. We've communicated a fair amount on uh, Facebook Messenger I think since you sent this but I think these are all still relevant uh, questions um, in terms of things I haven't answered for you so the first question is hi Paul uh, well he says a big thank you for the blogs and the podcasts and I, I appreciate that thank you Peter I'm glad you appreciate the effort um, and he said he would certainly buy me a beer if he was in England um, or if I ever come to the traditional territory uh, for a trip uh, in the uh, Ottawa River Valley, the Kitchi Sipi. Um, so, three quick questions. Being a bit cheeky here, Peter. One question. <laughs> but they're all good questions. Okay. First question is, what is the camera you use for Ask Paul Kirtley episodes? Um, this sounds like an obtuse answer, Peter, but it's whatever camera I've got with me. Um, it's not always the same camera. If you watch across the different episodes, I think I do a reasonably good job of making it look consistent, but I've probably used four different cameras over the course of the last six months uh, to make these. Uh, it can be anything from a compact camera to an SLR to a Handycam. Um, I don't think I've used my GoPro to make any of the, these. It would be a little bit weird um, unless I took it off the wide setting. Um, but sometimes i'm just out for the day for a walk and i've just got a small camera with me and i'll make a show while i'm out um so my my little deluxe camera 
I've used a few times um, because that's something I often, if I want to travel light but be able to do video and high quality photos because it takes raw photos, it's a micro four thirds sensor, um, it's reasonably good in low light, I've done some quite nice time lapses with it, it's good for macro, for, 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 for plant identification and for flower photographs and leaf photographs and all those sorts of details, it's good for general photography, it does good video, it does 4k video, not that I ever record in 4k video, um, but it's just a good general purpose little camera that I can put in my bag or have in my pocket um, or I've got a little pouch that I can sling over my shoulder. That's something I've often got with me. I've got a smaller compact camera which if I, if I don't even have the, the small camera, uh, which I would say is a small general purpose camera, I've got a Canon G7 which is a little compact camera with a flip. Um, that's quite good for video blogging. Um, but that will go on a small pouch on my belt or in a, in a, in a pocket and that's, something, that's the sort of camera that you could have with you all the time. Now those style of cameras have almost disappeared really, those really, really small cameras, because most people use their phones. Now I've never recorded one of these shows on a phone, although you could do, a lot of these will do 1080p HD video now, which is the, 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 the quality that I record in. Um, but the focal length issue is, 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 is something that is a bit hard to get right. And also I need my phone for the, for the questions, uh, use it as my notebook. Um, and so I've used probably four, maybe five different cameras. And at the end of the day, it, it does, apart from not using the phone, it doesn't really matter to me as long as it'll record at 1080p. Um, then I'm then I'm happy. Yes, okay. Some AVHCD is harder to edit than some other formats, but uh, it's it's just heavier on the editing um, the machine that you're doing the editing on, and it takes longer to crunch and compress. But ultimately, if I'm not going to lug a massive camera and tripod with me under some circumstances, other circumstances I might be able to have a larger camera and a, and a bigger tripod. But at the end of the day, what I can carry with me, because I'm recording some of these on trips as well. Remember, I've recorded these on trips in Canada and, and various other places. Um, I've recorded them up and down the UK, on walks, on canoe trips, all sorts of different things. It's whatever I've got with me. On a canoe trip, I've probably got often just a GoPro and a compact camera. Um, so like the Spay trip, I know I didn't do an episode of Ask Paul Kirtley on the Spay, but I did a little video blog of, of wash day on the River Spay, and if you haven't seen that, check that out. But that was filmed largely with a GoPro, but also with that little compact Canon when I did the bits to camera. Um, similarly, when I was in Canada, when I went to the Manitoba Museum and I looked at the different bushcraft takeaways from the Manitoba Museum, that was all filmed on a compact Canon camera. Um, so it's whatever I've got with me. I think at the end of the day, what's important is the, the content of the video. Um, and yes, production values are important. I always try and have good sound and I always try and have a 1080p um, a 1080p video. I used to film in 720 on my old camera, but now it's 1080. So those are the, the, the constraints. And depending on the camera I'm using, some are better in low light than others. So there are constraints there around when I'm gonna be able to use it. Um, this video camera that I'm using, the XF100, um, is not something I lug around with me very often. Um, I've got it with me today. Um, the reason is that I thought I might be recording this towards the end of the day, and this is the camera that's got the infrared on it. So if I need to switch to an infrared lamp, um, it's great for filming things in the dark. Um, 
this has got now here you can hear the road potentially there's a motorbike going in the, in the background so i'm not far away from a road but phone reception is virtually zero here and that's not i'm not telling you that just about the show i'm telling you that because people think these days and it's an important point that you know if you're out with your phone you don't need to take any other survival equipment or you don't need to tell somebody where you're going if i down in the dip here you know i'm on a relatively high spot here and um, for those people who are listening just to describe where i'm on a relatively high spot on a broad little ridge in the woods now if i drop down into dip further down between where i am now and where the road is i know for fact there's no mobile phone reception down there so there's a few little streams and logs and things down there if i was jumping around down there and broke my broke my ankle for example if i broke my tib and fib or did something nasty where I, it would be really difficult for me to move, I know I'm not gonna get a phone signal from down there. So even relatively close to home, it, it, not so much about the meta of making the show, but just we'll draw that out as a point, as, as part of this in terms of informing people about outdoor safety in general, don't rely too heavily on this being connected to the, to the net. Have a more robust system around um what you're doing like i do with my questions i used to rely on being able to access the questions on twitter and email as and when i did the show and that just became problematic so i put them into an offline um folder now and i don't have to rely on phone reception um second part of the question uh gps love it or hate it um i'm ambivalent it's a tool it's another tool um i hate it when like we're talking about with the phones i hate it when people overly rely on it um, it's an electronic device which can break it's susceptible to moisture even in a relatively sealed unit they can get wet um, and i speak from the position of being a canoeist um, you can break them the batteries can go flat um, even if you think you've got enough batteries if you leave it on by accident or it gets pushed on by accident these things happen um, it, it shouldn't be your only tool um, gps on phones phone batteries are terrible if you're on a cold hillside um phone batteries are, are not good in the cold they'll go from being very full to looking relatively empty wood pigeon just changed direction looking for somewhere to roost probably at this time of day came flying over and then he saw me and off over there somewhere um the 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 the, the the, the battery is something that while it might work when it's nice and warm in your pocket and around about town up in the hills um, or out in the cold in the winter don't rely on it so I wouldn't rely on on GPS on phone navigation at all in the outdoors personally um, get a dedicated GPS unit um, Garmin makes some very good units some small wrist-based units and some larger units they're good um, and I do use them not not all the time but um, I use them when I'm with clients I've got a higher duty of care when I'm with clients and so you know if we're on a trip in Canada I'm going to have a lot of redundancy in terms of making sure I know where I am I have a satellite phone with me if I was doing my own trip I maybe wouldn't have a satellite phone maybe I would have a satellite phone that's a decision to be made at the time when I'm with clients I have a satellite phone um, I own a satellite phone I have um, a subscription to a satellite phone service so I would probably take it on my own um, but that would be a decision I'd make at the time with clients definitely have it with clients I definitely have a GPS even if I don't pull that GPS out at all during the trip to navigate on the trip if there's an accident and I need to get on the phone and tell somebody exactly where I am I've got a GPS so that 
you know, in the stress of the moment, yes, I can read the map, yes, I can follow the map, yes, I can get somebody to double check for me, but then I've also got a GPS which will double check where I am. And um, it's the same when I'm, when I'm ski touring in the winter and in winter conditions when it's harder to navigate, particularly in the mountains, I like to have a GPS as backup. So I'll have it set to the grid system of the map that I'm using. So if I'm in Norway, when I get to Norway, I'll make sure that the when I'm somewhere that isn't a long way away from anywhere and I know exactly where I am, you know, even if it's just in town, I will make sure that my GPS, the datum is set to the map that we're going to be using. I'll make sure that it's coming out with the right reading, that it's giving me an accurate grid reference for the mapping system that I'm using, that I understand that which way around the x and the y coordinates are because they're not always the same in sweden they're the other way around and um, which of the digits are the sheet number if they refer to a sheet and which are the grid reference on the actual grid i make sure i thoroughly understand that relationship between what my gps is telling me and what my map is telling me before i set foot on a trip and then i will use it normally just to double check so i'm 99% sure of where I am but for some reason there's a doubt it could be that we're in virtually zero visibility um, that's often the case when I use a GPS I'll turn the GPS on just to double check that we haven't gone horribly wrong somewhere uh, and that's a safety point as much as anything it's not a weakness um, they can sometimes allow you to travel in conditions that maybe you wouldn't travel if you were just relying on map and compass um, so if you're, if you're using them as a crutch because your map and compass skills are poor, then you shouldn't be using them. You should be working on your map and compass skills before heading out. But if you're using them as an additional tool to augment and bolster and strengthen what you can do anyway, then I think they're a great tool. That, that's my view on GPS. Uh, they're, they're a tool at the end of the day. Um, third question, I suspect you take a book with you on your trips. What are your top two out on a camping or canoeing trip reads uh, but not necessarily bushcraft related well i think i kind of answered this question before i can't remember the exact context of the question but I, when i was in canada um I, I think i answered a question similar and apologies if it was a slightly different question but um one of the books that i would recommend i think it is great because of the context of being out in the woods is walden um, Thoreau's Walden. Uh, you're probably familiar with it already. A lot of people are, um, but that's a great one. I think it's, it's a timeless classic that reads very well when you're out on a trip, particularly uh, in, in North America, particularly in the woods there. I think that one reads very well there, but it's, it's a great, I mean, it, it, it's not just about the outdoors. It's, it's a philosophic book. It's a personal philosophy. It's a philosophy of life as well, which I think chimes very well with the outlook that you get from spending a lot of time in the woods so i like that one a lot um if we're not including any sort of bushcraft manuals which frankly i don't <laughs> i don't take my bushcraft manuals in there i don't take bushcraft manuals with me when i do trips um unless that's a slightly flippant answer and i i might take a uh more of a field guide with me so say i was traveling in an area that i wasn't so familiar with in terms of the trees and the plants i would probably take a good field guide in terms of trees and a good field guide in terms of plants as a minimum um, so that i can learn as i go you know i'm always wanting to learn more so that would be something um, but those aside books you specifically said canoe trips um cache lake country 
I think it is Cash Lake Country or Cash Lake County, Cash Lake Country. Um, that's a great book. I really enjoy that. That's kind of a Voyager discovery in itself. Um, that's one that I think would be, it, it certainly bears rereading. So that um, and Walden would would be high contenders to be in my portage pack on a on a paddling trip definitely right next question before we lose the light again a bit of a meta question um not so much about the show question so i've hit the instagram uh questions a little bit here um i i'd sort of almost stopped looking because people were hardly ever sending me some questions and then i was made aware of the fact there were a few questions there waiting for me so this one is from Jason and just if you're asking a question on Instagram people don't send me a private message post a post on your Instagram and tag that post ask Paul Kirtley so make a, a public post with a photograph ask your question as that post or part of the post with a relevant photograph preferably and tag it ask Paul Kirtley amongst other things don't send me a PM the, the message notifications on Instagram are not good um, and I don't always see them. And even if I do see them and then I reply to you and then you reply back, it doesn't always notify me um, that there's a, there's a message waiting there for me. So if you want to ask a question for this show, whether it's on Twitter, on Facebook or on Instagram, public post with the hashtag AskPaulKirtley. Don't, don't direct message me, don't private message me. The only way to private message me is via my blog, send me an email or send me a speak pipe question. Um, hopefully that's, that's clear. Um, so Jason's done the right thing here. He's done a public post, nice photograph of some, uh, of some flowing water. He's done a, a, a long exposure, so it's blurred the water. And his question is, hello, Paul, knowing that you are a keen and accomplished photographer, um, I'm keen, I don't know if I'm accomplished, but I'm keen. Um, could you recommend a good camera tripod for walking, camping and canoeing with? What sort of features do you look for other than the obvious weight and rigidity? I have a budget of a couple of hundred pounds. Kind regards, Jason. Um, as you can see, I'm using fence posts. Um, well, yeah, I guess I guess now that you mention it, I can see you're using a fence post, but um, the fence is there in the, in the photograph. Um, get the best one that you can afford. It's like a knife, get the best one that you can afford. Um, lightweight is important. So if you can, if you can stretch to it, carbon fiber, you don't need a particularly complicated head on a, if you just, if you're not doing video and panning shots and things, if you just need it to hold it, even just something that screws into that general screw fitting on the base of your camera that every camera's got and that you can adjust. A lot of cameras now have got a sort of built-in leveler, a built-in spirit level, so you don't even need any sort of spirit level or anything that's going to help tell. The camera will probably do that for you these days. So just a ball, basically, a ball with a plate that's got a screw thing that you can rotate around, you can move up and down wherever you want, get it to the position you want and then lock it off. That's all you're looking for in a head and then if you want some sort of quick release plate, then you can add that, but you don't need it necessarily, particularly if you're working on a really tight budget or really tight weight constraints. Carbon fiber tripod. Um, Gitso make a really good one. I can't remember how much it is. I've got the back of my mind. It's really quite expensive. The reason I don't know exactly how much it is is because I've got an old Gitso tripod, which is a bit chunky. It's a bit, it's a bit big. 
um, that I used with my old film SLR. So that tells you how long ago I bought it. Um, my, uh, my partner, Amanda, has got a more compact one that I borrow sometimes. And I think I had that one perhaps on the blood vein that you came with us on, Jason. I certainly had it on the previous one. And what's nice about it is that it folds back on itself. So the head is kind of on the inside. So you don't have the head and then the legs. It, it goes right back over on itself. So it's, it's much shorter. And that will fit in the side, uh, down the side of one of my day packs. It'll fit on the inside of a day pack. It'll easily fit inside a portage pack. Um, and it's light. So I took that on the, the Scottish 4000s walk that we did, um, where we walked right across Scotland, uh, taking in the mountains over 4,000 feet. Um, I took it with me on that. I think I used it twice, <laughs> but it was light enough for me to take it with me. Um, was, and, it was, and it was, you know, small enough that it would just sit on the side of my, of my pack. Um, but they are quite expensive. So get the, get the, get a carbon fiber, get so or Manfrotto are the main manufacturers, or um, what's the other manufacturer that's a little, is it light stuff? Light, it might be light stuff. I've got a monopod of theirs, which is very light actually. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name um, there. I'll put the links, I'll put Gitso Manfrotto and another one um, in the show notes. Look at those manufacturers, they all make good uh, carbon fiber. By the, by the best lightest weight one you can that meets your specifications. Um, you've got a, I know you've got a mirrorless camera, so you, it doesn't need, you don't need um, as chunkier, as chunkier tripod as you might need for a full size, full frame DSLR, for example, with a big lens on it. Um, so you'll get away with quite a small one. And if you can extend to a carbon fiber one, uh, it'll be very light for the, uh, for the functionality. That was a slightly waffly answer. Apologies for that. Uh, winter Tinder Bundle. So another Instagram question. Nice picture of a fire here from Quixotic Geek. And she asks, which materials would you recommend for use in the Tinder Bundle when using a bow drill that can be gathered at this time of year? And at this time of year, she means February, March, when she's asked this question. So winter when there's not a lot of other stuff around. Um, in southern Britain. Are there any good options for when conditions have been rather damp like they have been recently? Yeah, there are. Well, you can probably see in the background here there's lots of dead bracken. That is a good option. Uh, just be careful if you're pulling it up because in the centre of the main stem and the side stems are really very sharp fibres and they can lacerate your hands. I learned that lesson when I was a young boy living in North Wales. I pulled up some bracken in the in the forest and sliced my hands right open, went running home, blood everywhere. Mother was like, oh my god, what have you done? Um, I've still got the scars on my hands um, and I'm always very, very wary of people starting to pull bracken up. It sends a shiver through my spine when I see that, whether it's dry, whether it's green. It was green bracken that I pulled up as a kid or tried to pull up. Um, Basically, it's like razor blades. You're just running your hands up them, which isn't great. Um, so do be careful of that. But these fronds that you get, those of you that are watching the video can see that, the fronds that you get on bracken, this, if it's dry, is very good for a tinder bundle. Um, it's not great if it's sopping wet, but because it's not completely flat on the ground, a day like today, it's not warm, but there's been a steady but 
slow, low breeze from the east, that's enough to dry off. These are, these are, these are very dry at the moment and that would be fine. You get a good bundle of that, that's going to be fine. When it's, when it's a bit wetter though, that won't dry very well in your pocket. What's much better is if you can find some uh, honeysuckle, some wild honeysuckle, which is growing in the woods, you'll find it. We could walk not too far from here and I'm sure we'd find some honeysuckle. Um, it's a vine, a liana growing up into the trees. Outer bark, the dead outer bark, strip that off and that doesn't hold a lot of moisture. You can get a good little tinder bundle and you might want to augment that with some bracken on the outside, but just use that. Um, it will dry well in your pocket with some body warmth. Um, that's something you could use. What takes a bit more processing are the inner bark fibers of things like oak or sweet chestnut. They're often typically damp, particularly in the condition that you want to collect them because they need to be semi-rotten for you to be able to separate them easily from the other parts of the, of the outer bark and from the wood pull out that uh, pull out that cambium those fibers from there um, so that's maybe something that you'd have to leave in the sun or if you had an existing fire you might need to leave it by the fire to dry it's going to take you a little bit longer but in terms of immediate use try and find some dead dry bracken if that's a bit damp try and find some honeysuckle um, those would be my top options for this for this time of the year um, if you're in a part of the world you know more heathy area um, it might be sandy you might be in more in the uplands depending on which part of the country I know you said southern England but just to generalize the answer a little bit more juniper as well juniper bark if you can get some dead outer bark of juniper that works very well as well I won't extend into non-native species that might have been introduced um, but you know juniper is a native species so if there is somewhere you are do bear that in mind um, it needs to be dead though on the outside um, and you can strip that off and break it down into a good bird's nest tinder bundle as well so bracken um, honeysuckle juniper maybe some inner bark fibers failing that but they're going to take a little bit more drying hope that helps another instagram question see i went crazy on the instagram questions today this one is from tom scandian which is a good name tom scandian hi paul um so quite a long question so I'll try and run through this quickly. I've lived in Sussex, England my whole life but I've taken a year out to travel around Australia, lucky man, um, and currently completing my three months regional work working on a 60 acre farm three hours south of Perth. They've kind of given me uh, full access to the forest as well as a number of ponds and streams and so basically the question is he wants to improve his skills, get to know the local trees and plants and what their uses are for, but they're very different from what he's used to at home, which is more this sort of environment in Sussex, where I am now. Uh, can you pass on any advice or interesting facts about some of Australia's native plants and trees and their uses, as well as some of the highlights of your time spent in Australia? Well, I was in a very different part of Australia, really, um, on the longest visit that I've done where I've spent any time looking at trees and plants there and that was up in the uh, in the north of Queensland where it's a lot more tropical um, but I, I think the advice um, I would give you is um, some more general advice because then it'll be useful to everybody um, I'm not in a position to give you specific advice about where you are to be honest with you Tom in terms of the native trees and plants I don't have that knowledge on the top of my head so what I can tell you is what I would do to learn and that would be 
and, and all of this may be obvious, I would get hold of um, some good, and I mean good, not just sort of superficial, you know, and we've got more access than ever to finding this information online now, but get access to some good native tree guides to where you are. And that might be a regional guide, um, and that's fine. You know, some of the North American tree and plant guides I've got are Northeastern United States, for example. You're not necessarily gonna get something that covers everywhere, but get something specific and detailed to your area and um, start to start to identify the trees and the plants that you're seeing regularly yeah so the common and widespread ones yeah just start to identify what they are and then cross-reference that with if there's any native um, people that you can you can speak to that have some knowledge um, if there's any uh, so I'm talking indigenous aboriginal people or if there are people who've been on the land there for a long time so you know white settlers who have been there um, for a long time that know the land well um, and know some of the uses that would be, you know speak to people um, but we've got access to the internet now, so once you get to know what the common and widespread species are in your area, you can start doing a bit of research online. And I know you're probably travelling with a phone. You can get on Wi-Fi. You can get the, you know, the the trees, you know, particular species of eucalyptus or particular, you know, whatever you're seeing, and start researching on those and finding some information. And then I would be writing that down in a notebook, and then maybe if it's safe to do so trying some of those things now that's kind of based on what you can see now clearly the other side of it is um, what um, is not so easy to see but maybe very very useful for you to know coming at it from the other angle and the top resource that I would point you in the direction of there are the books of Les Hiddens um, the bush tucker man um, because he has put together some nice guides some of them are quite you know spanning the country but a lot of the species that are in there that are relevant to you um buzzard going over there um will be in there so look at the bush tucker man's um, materials he also produced some survival maps and i don't know how easy they are to get hold of now but if you can find them while you're there definitely get hold of them and if there's any duplicates and they're not too expensive get me some copies get me a copy as well and i'll give you them seriously i'll give you the money for them when you get back um les hiddens produced these survival maps that had a map of an area and on the flip side it had useful it was it was food uh, food plants on the back that you could you could forage for so that that would be a one-stop shop survival guide to have for downed pilots for example in the bush now i don't know if there are any for the areas that you're in um, but that would be something else to look out for so less hidden's books less hidden's maps and then coming at it from one side speaking to locals and also then coming at it from the other angle of just okay well i keep seeing this tree so let's make sure i know what that is i keep seeing that plant so let's make sure i know what that is use your tree and plant id guides to do that and then once you know what they are for sure research on the net see what you can find that other people have written about them cross-reference it because there's a lot of bullcrap written on the internet about what things can be used for um, that's not substantiated um, or there's just chinese whispers one person writes it somewhere else somebody else uses that as a reference it goes round and round and round and round and it kind of becomes an urban myth even though nobody's ever actually done it um, i see that happening quite a lot in bushcraft and survival blogs these days 
um, you need to go back to the original sources sometimes and work out whether or not they had any sort of substantiating evidence to back up what they're saying. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got a great resource there in terms of the internet. And if cross-referencing that with everything else, you start to build up a web. And yes, it is some work. It is some work, but that's what I would be doing. Um, and it's what I, if I go to an area that I don't know, that's exactly what I do. And very quickly you get up the curve, um, knowing what all the common and widespread trees can be used for because, um, because you notice them. And then also tapping into people who really know the specifics of what you should be learning in that environment, bringing the two together, making your own notes, cross-referencing, making your own matrix that way. You'll, you know, you'll soon get up the curve, but it takes some work. But it's it's a great it's a great thing to do. Question from Scott, and Scott is the guy who interviewed me for um, his blog a while ago, Bull Moose Patrol. If you didn't read that interview, I'll put a link in the show notes. Shameless self promotion, but it also get people onto Scott's blog as well, which is a nice blog. Um, now he sent me a private message via Facebook and he said, I don't know if this is an approved channel for submitting an Ask Paul Curtly question. It's best if you don't send me questions that way because I can't search. Think about it, if you send me a question, um, I'm not gonna answer it there and then. I'll, I'll probably look at the message next time I'm on Facebook or the next time I'm in my email, I'll see it, but unless it's tagged in some way that I can search, when I come to compile the questions for the show, I'm not gonna find it necessary. That's the problem with direct messages on Twitter, problem with direct messages on Instagram. Public posts, I can search the hashtag in public and it will bring up all the posts. Um, so public posts are better, but I did remember to cut and paste this one into across into Evernote so I do have it but I don't encourage people to do that because I may well miss them or forget about them by the time I get around to making a show. So his question is um, I'm loving your Q&A Ask Paul Curtly videos great information and they're keeping our newborn and I entertained during the middle of the night feedings. A lot of the questions have focused on individual skills and gear. I'm wondering if you would talk a bit about your process for organizing and leading group trips classes and expeditions. I like to hear about your timeline, logistics, provisioning, etc. What advice do you have for group leaders? Well, Scott, that's a massive question. Um, people have written whole books on expedition planning. Um, people run whole courses on that, on expedition planning. You can go on to, you can go to conferences on that at the Royal Geographical Society. Um, second part of the question. What advice do you have for group leaders? Um, in a nutshell, I would say, be authentic, be honest, be friendly, uh, be firm when you need to be, but don't be like a barking sergeant major all the time. Um, it depends on the experience level of the group, of course, as well. It depends on the age of the group, how much authority you need to have over them. Um, but generally, just just be be sensitive, be empathetic, be willing to be firm when you need to be, but don't let that be your default position um, and, and turn into an ogre. Um, you have to, it's a tough job. A lot of people don't think about the fact that it's a tough job. You've, you've, got to, you've got to give a lot. I think if you're looking at leading trips or even leading courses, if, you, if you're not willing to give 
90% and only receive 10% of the time. And that's probably a favorable, it's probably more like 97.3. Um, then don't do it. Don't get into that line of work. You have to you have to be giving, 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 giving all the time. People want your attention. People want your help. People want um, your support. They want your encouragement. Um, they want your reassurance. They want your leadership. They want your expertise. Um, yes, you're going to learn and uh, things from people as well as you go. And the overall experience is very valuable for you. Um, both in terms of sort of personal development um, as an individual, as a human being, but also in terms of your professional development as an outdoor leader. It's all very valuable from that perspective, but you, you often come away from a course or a trip, or I certainly do, um, feeling quite drained. Now, I think I'm, I've never been properly tested, but I think I'm an introvert. I know I'm sat in front of a camera here, you know, talking, uh, but that's something I've had to get used to. And if you look at my early videos from a few years ago, it was, they were terrible. Um, I've got better at it. I'm not saying I'm brilliant now, and I'm sure I'll look back on these in a few years' time and think these are awful as well. But the point is that um, I am quite happy on my own. I'm quite happy to go out in the woods and camp for a day, a weekend, a week on my own. I'm happy in my own company. And the sort of person who, after a while at a party, I, I, it's not that I, you know, need to escape, but I've had enough. I want to go home and have a bit of quiet time. Um, you know, same. It's the same with any gathering of people. I don't, a small number of people, I, I kind of enjoy. Large numbers of people, uh, I find tiring. And so it's the same with courses that. It may be some, somewhat personal to me. I'm not a massively extroverted person. Um, and you have to give a lot when you're on those courses. So unless you're willing to do that and be just there for the people on the course, um, and that's your job, um, or there for the people you're leading, that's your job if you're leading people on a wilderness trip, then don't be doing it. Don't be doing it out of ego. Don't be doing it to show off. Don't be doing it out of self-aggrandizement. Don't be doing it to strut your stuff. Any of those reasons are the wrong reasons to be doing it. Don't be doing it to show that you're better than other people. I know I've known of instructors in the past who, you know, they're very belittling of people who can't do things that they're showing them on a course. It's like, that's why they're on a course with you because they want to learn. So don't berate them or, or laugh at them because they don't know how to do it. You have to give and you have to be empathetic. So that, that to me is the core of all of it. Um, the logistics is just practicality. Um, you know, over-prepare rather than under-prepare. If I was to give one general thing, particularly when you've got a, um, a duty of care to clients rather than you doing your own personal trips, um, just be over-prepared in terms of um, knowing inside out of how everything's going to work, go back over things. If you're working with colleagues, go back over them again and again, have a plan, have an escape plan, have a plan A, a plan B, have, you know, um, have your maps, have spare maps, have uh, you know, we talked about before, satellite phone, have a spare battery for your satellite phone, but then have spare batteries in case the spare battery doesn't, you know, work. And then clearly there's a limit to how much of the, that sort of extra kitchen sink thinking you can do. But there are some things that are absolutely critical. So I've heard of stories, for example, where um, I think it was a trip on the Nahani or the mountain river that a group did and somehow their satellite phone got left on or it got turned on and the battery went flat and then they had communication issues after that. Um, you've, got to, you've got to always think that 
that might happen. That might not happen with your first battery. That might happen, you know, you might have used your first battery, you put the second battery in, and then you flatten it by accident. So maybe you need a third battery that you might never use, but in case you flatten the second one, which is your last battery, you've got that in reserve. Now, for the weight of a, for the weight of a satellite phone battery, that's worth carrying on a trip. Now, you wouldn't carry all of your cooking gear twice, for example, because that's less critical. But, um, you know, some things are more critical than others. Spare compass, spare maps, those, you know, extra spare batteries for a GPS, even if you don't think an extra couple of AA batteries for a handheld Garmin unit are not that much extra weight, but can make a massive difference. So think about worst case scenarios. Think about making sure that everybody knows where things are. One of the first things that I do on a wilderness trip including clients is I will show them how to use the satellite phone because it's no good if, if I'm the only person who knows how to call out on a satellite phone because they're a bit different from from using cell phones um, if I'm the only person on the trip that knows how to use it and I get injured everyone's stuffed so it's thinking about those sorts of things which I think are the most critical elements you know the rest is just logistics you know making sure that you've got the right equipment making sure you've got enough food again um, I've heard of some pretty uh, bad stories in recent years of um, outfits taking clients to places and just getting the food rations completely wrong and people getting back to civilization and basically gorging on McDonald's at the airport because they've been so hungry for the past week or 10 days. You need, that's just shoddy. You need people uh, to be well fed, um, within the context of what you're doing, um, plenty of energy. You need to work out the calories that you're gonna be using, the type of foods that are gonna be heartening, the type of foods that are gonna work with the cooking that you can do. You need to know if people have got dietary requirements, all of those sorts of things well in advance. You need to make sure your insurance is good. And then you need to make sure all the equipment's in the right place at the right time. Um, that's just logistics, really. That's just planning. Just the same as you would make sure you've got everything you need in your backpack if you're doing a personal trip. You just need to make sure you've got everything for a bigger trip. It's the same thinking. Lists are always extremely useful. Don't try and do things off the top of your head. Lists and checklists. And I think for anybody who's an outdoor leader, um, go and read the, 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 the name of the author escapes me off the top of my head it's uh, I can't remember the name of the author sorry but the the book is very clear in my mind the name of the book it's the checklist manifesto and it's written about it's written from the perspective of the medical profession but it also applies to um, what pilots do airline pilots and I think for outdoor leaders as well there's a lot to be learned from that book checklist manifesto if you applied that to your expedition planning um, in terms of whether it's making sure you've got the right gear or making sure everything's done before you go making sure that everybody knows what they need to know has been uh, promulgated out amongst the group or out amongst the support people that are left behind those sorts of checklists super super important and checklists about what to do in emergencies as well all of that's very very useful so that's a little bit of a potted account as i say you could write some lengthy articles if not a book on each of those subjects that you asked about but hopefully that helps give you some insight into my thinking there and if you've got more specific questions about some of those areas i can answer them on future shows or we can get into that offline as well if, if that's more appropriate
Okay, we're gonna have to speed on now. Two more questions, but the sun's down and I can see the gain going up on the camera. That's the other nice thing about this camera. I can set the gain to auto so it doesn't get darker and darker and darker. It tries to adjust for the light levels as the light levels go down. So it looks darker to me now than, than it does on the, I can see the camera screen pointing, but flipped it back to me. It looks lighter on the camera screen and it will look lighter on the video than it actually looks to me around in the woods here. Um, it's nearly six o'clock in the evening, 1800 hours as I record this in uh, in March and um, it's getting dark, the sun's down and it's getting colder as well actually. Okay, so this is from, this is a follow-up question about Hadza and meat um, and this is from quite a while ago, so apologies this has taken a while for me. Uh, to get to um, but basically thanks so much for answering my speak pipe question um, you referenced in your podcast with Alyssa Crittenden um, your answer to my question and in your podcast with her so he's gone and listened to that in, in reference to that so basically I answered the question I referenced the podcast with Alyssa Crittenden he's gone to listen to the podcast with Alyssa Crittenden and then come back with this question and uh, you comment on the differences between the meat available today and the meat available in human history. You, your remark certainly resonated with Alyssa and I would love to know what you meant by it, uh, either as another question for Ask Paul Kirtley or another podcast with Alyssa. What an interesting podcast that was. And it was an interesting podcast. And if you haven't listened to that podcast with Alyssa Crittenden, I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, well worth a listen. If you don't subscribe to my, uh, to my Paul Kirtley uh, podcast, as well as the Ask Paul Kirtley shows, I, they're a separate podcast on, on the podcast platforms, as well as me putting these out as a video. Um, certainly subscribe via iTunes or via the Apple uh, podcasting app or via Stitcher or however else you want to do it. Um, so what we meant was, well, the simple answer is that most of the meat that's available to us now is, is a result of agriculture. It's a result of farming, uh, whether that's um, beef, whether that's pork, whether that's lamb, most of the meat that most people that eat meat eat, that kind of rhymed, um, most of it is, is, is a result of agriculture now. Some of that is more free range than others, um, but the bulk of the meat that most people eat in the first world today is not free range wild meat. Um, the proportions say that venison makes up um, of, of the meat um, you don't typically see venison in the supermarkets unless maybe it's a slightly higher end supermarket um, or a very large supermarket where they've got some more specialist foods. You know, you, you're always, if you go into your, your general store, you know, your general supermarket, you know that you're going to find some beef mints, some lamb mints, some pork chops, some steaks, uh, pork sausages, some chicken fillets, some you know whole chickens you know you're always going to find those things but all of those things come from farms they come from an agricultural sort of a you know you can see it as an industrial complex if you want um but it comes from that farming post sort of industrial uh, so post sort of agricultural revolution system that we've developed over the past couple of thousand years um we're not eating wild boar 
and venison and uh, you know bison and aurochs and all sorts of things that would have been eaten in the past. We're not eating woolly mammoths. We're not eating rhinoceroses. Um, you know, there's evidence that our ancestors ate all of these things when they were prevalent. Um, and so during the time that we've developed as a species, the meat that's been available to us has changed massively from one that was wild meat that we that you know lived wild like we were living wild and that we came across either because other animals had killed them or we hunted them and we got that meat and we ate it and there were different species and there were no antibiotics there was they were clearly they were well exercised if you think about people now versus people in the past yeah, we can survive by being quite fat and slothful. Personally, um, I've put some weight on this winter, I need to lose it, but I can get away with that. Um, and I will lose it as we get into the course season and I, I'm just active the whole time rather than trying to write and work on online courses and things. Um, you, you, you get away with that. And that's, that's what your body's fat store is for. It's so that, you know, when things are a bit better and you've got a bit of excess, your body stores it. And then when you're working hard and you maybe don't have enough food, you, your body draws down on that. That's perfectly natural. And that's what your body does. But we can get away with putting on a couple of pounds every year, every year, every year, every year. And there's no consequence to that. If we were living as hunter-gatherers, the, the chances of putting that weight on in the first place are probably less because you've got to work for every single calorie. Um, even though I don't necessarily believe in calorie counting, we can simplify it to those terms. Every single morsel of food that you get, whether you dig it out the ground or whether you hunt it, you have to get some, you have to expend some energy to get it. Um, the most energy that we typically have to expend is to go to the supermarket. Um, and so we don't, we can get a lot of calories for not very much effort these days. And similarly with the farm animals that we're eating, um, they, we feed them, we make sure they don't starve and they don't have to do a lot of exercise necessarily to get that food. Yes, okay, the cows are gonna be out in the field, but sometimes the farmer will bring them into the shed sometimes. And I know I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a farmer and I know I'm simplifying things slightly, but there's a, there's a big difference between wild herds of things roaming plains or roaming forests and having to be fit and be able to run away from predators and and get the, the right amount of calories on board. If you think about caribous doing a caribou herds doing their uh, migration versus uh, you know a domesticated uh, deer in a deer park. It's got a very very different life. That has an effect on the fat content of the meat. It has a uh, an effect on on the on the consistency of. Uh, of the fibers. I mean, for example, if you eat, if you, I, I challenge you to do this, take some chicken breasts, if you eat meat, take some chicken breasts from uh, an organic free range chicken that has been allowed to run around and feed as it, as it were, and you cook that versus something that's been much more cooped up, um, that isn't organic, that isn't free range. Um, the organic bit isn't so important, but the point is, is how much exercise it's had. Um, and you, you, you pan fry that, um, for example, and then butterfly it perhaps. Um, just sim cook it, simple cooking without sauces and extra, you know, extra stuff. Basically cook the meat and see how it turns out. I can guarantee, certainly my experience is that the free range stuff isn't as tender 
as the stuff that's being cooped up. The, the stuff that's been cooped up hasn't been allowed to run around outside. It, it's just soft because the muscles are soft because it doesn't need to exercise. And it's the same with a lot of the meat that we eat. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying it's different. And so that was, that was the basis of that conversation that I was having, or the basis of the comment during that wider conversation I was having with Alyssa is that what we have available to us in terms of meat is vastly different today than what it was 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, 10,000, 100,000 years ago, it's changed. Um, and we can debate the effects that that might be having on our health or otherwise. Um, it's very, very difficult to work out what the effect on our health is um, anyway. Um, you know, it, it, scientifically, that's extremely difficult to do. There's so many factors. You don't have a control. There's lots and lots of issues there. But the point is, observational point is that what we eat now in terms of meat is very different to what we've eaten in the past and I know I've some in a way the summary of my answer is the same as what you wanted uh, to know more about in the question but hopefully that gives you some insight into the thinking there right last question there's an owl tawny owl over there that started to call um, what you're probably seeing on the video is it's getting a little bit more grainy perhaps as the gain goes up on the camera. Those of you that are interested in how to make these shows. Um, okay, this is, this is the weekly question from Isa, um, who actually sends me more questions than this, but I pick one a week. <laughs> hey Paul, I found that spruce resin produces a lot of black smoke when burned. It makes me nauseous nauseous even. Um, if I were to use spruce or pine as firewood to cook with, would the black smoke from the resin in the wood turn the food toxic? It's pretty difficult to even breathe sat next to burning resin, let alone eat something that has cooked over it. So um, I think any, any sooty deposit on food based on my very, very limited understanding, but any sooty deposit or charring, people even say burnt toast, um, has a potential to increase your risk of cancer at some point in your life. So it wouldn't surprise me that um, there's an increased risk of cancer associated with burnt resin residue on meat or fish where you to cook it directly over it. Um, whether there's an immediate toxic issue, no, there, there isn't. You know, you could eat that. It probably wouldn't taste great um, with lots of uh, residue on it. And certainly if you're burning lots of uh, spruce or pine um, and put a cooking pot over it, it's you get much more sticky black residue on the base than you do if, you, if you're using, I don't know, oak or beech or hornbeam or willow or something like that. So there is that um, and you can, we could debate whether that's healthful or not over the long term. Immediate term, no, it's more of a taste issue. Um, the smoke is an issue though, and I've, I've also been made, I've had uh, nausea and headaches from smoky fires with a lot of spruce or pine in them. If, you, if you've got a natural shelter with a fire in the middle with a gap for the smoke to go out the top, if that's too smoky and you have a lot of spruce or pine in there, that can cause you know issues. Um, 
it can to the extent where it can i've known people throw up as a result of it um thinking that they might have food poisoning whereas my my bet was on the on the on the spruce smoke so that's an, that's an issue and again if you're in a survival situation or you're in a tricky situation where you're stuck somewhere and maybe you don't have enough food or you haven't had enough fluid the last thing you want to be doing is throwing up as well so it, it, it's it's an issue also headaches um headaches people laugh off oh a headache headache but the, the sort of headaches that you get from a combination of dehydration hypoglycemia so low blood sugar um maybe withdrawal from caffeine maybe withdrawal from from tobacco if you're used to all of those things um, and you don't have them in a situation where you're stranded somewhere um they can give you they, they'll all give you headaches and really debilitating pounding headaches at that if you add smoke into the equation as well that can just make things even worse so i, I would be always avoiding that and and as, as a general point just to finish up on um i don't think you really want to be breathing any smoke in if you can avoid it in a confined space and if you sat around a campfire try and get it burning with a bit more flame so that the smoke is carried up and away smoke is always the result of incomplete combustion so if you can increase um, the the airflow if you can change the fuel to air mix you know sometimes it might just need you to put a bit more small material on that burns a bit quicker to carry the smoke you know just keep keep that going um, because we've seen it in africa people's lives become much more more extended once they're not having to burn firewood in their homes um, for light and for, for, for cooking because they're not breathing in that wood smoke all the time. It's known to cause issues with um, lung health um, and uh, also lung cancer. Uh, you don't want to be doing it, you know, and I work outdoors a lot. I'm around campfires a lot and I, I, I really try and avoid breathing too much smoke in generally because um, I've never smoked cigarettes in my life. Um, but I don't want to counteract that by breathing lots of campfire smoke in. So do be mindful of that. Try and have as smoke-free a fire as possible, whether you're burning spruce and pine or anything else. Um, and if you're going to cook over directly over a fire, I'd be using uh, non-resinous woods to do so um, because that's going to give you a better flavour as well uh, as anything else. So hopefully that answers the question. That brings us to the end of this show, uh, just as it's getting dark I and mean, my hands are starting to get a little cold now um so um tree and plant id course is still open uh bitly bit.ly forward slash id masterclass until the end of march and then it's finished it's closed and it won't open again until next year when it is more expensive it will be more expensive next year um this is the last year of the pricing that we've had for the last three years so um get in while you can if you if you want to if you just want more information email me but bear in mind we are now running out of time and looking forward to doing the live episode of ask paul kirtley this weekend and that will be out next week so look forward to that so have a great weekend whatever you're up to um hope you've enjoyed this episode and keep the questions coming in i am getting caught up with them again now i know i'm not there yet but more episodes to come keep them coming in Thanks for all your questions. Thanks for your attention. And thanks for your support. Speak to you soon. Cheers.